First Peter last couple of weeks and uh, or last week was last week the first week. I feel like every week blends together <laughs> for me. Uh, but we're going to be in the book of First Peter and move on to Second Peter most likely, but uh, for quite a while. Uh, last week we talked about. Uh, the need to have, for for us as believers to be a people of joy, the people that would have uh, thanksgiving within our hearts, that we would be people who, truly out of the overflow of what Christ has done in us, that we would be people that praise Him, uh, and the people would see that in us, that there's something different in us, that we're not people that just all the time walk walk around talking about all the things that are wrong and everything that uh, uh, makes us miserable sometimes in life. Right, Too many times we have a tendency to do that as Christians and there should be something that is greater in us. And we talked about uh, uh, the living hope that uh, is available to us in, in Christ. And we're going to review that just for a moment uh, before we move on today. But First uh, Peter chapter 1, uh, we're going to start in verse 3 uh, and go through verse 7 today. But uh, also I just want to, want to also note that uh, I, I hate sometimes repeating myself though I think sometimes things need repeated uh, for us to get them. I'm, maybe I'm the only one, but we have a tendency, I think, to forget things very quickly, uh, and, and we need to be reminded of things over and over. But as we go through uh, the, Peter's letters to the churches, there's going to be a lot of themes that are repeated because Peter repeats some of the same things over and over to the church in his letters to kind of emphasize some of those things. So throughout this time that we go through, uh, Peter's letters to the churches, we're going to repeat some of the same things, and hopefully hopefully by the end of that we understand uh, uh, that we need to truly sometimes take these principles and make sure that we are allowing them to be foundational to everything that we do, that we need to have things that we remind ourselves of over and over as Christians and never let them go so that we can always live out uh, uh, what Christ has called us to. But First Peter... Uh, chapter 1, starting in verse 3 today. It says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In His great mercy, He has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In all this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. So, uh, as I said last week, we we never really got to inheritance, but we talked last week about uh, uh, the living hope that is available in Christ, uh, and, and it's a hope that doesn't just sit on the shelf. We talked about it last week. It's not, it's not a hope that just we sit on a shelf somewhere, and whenever things get difficult or we go through grief, then we go revisit that. You see, sometimes as Christians, we have these little areas where we meet with God, and we never meet Him anywhere in between. We have, uh, of course, Sunday morning, where we God is in His little box on Sunday morning, and when we get here, we open up that little box, and we take God out for a while, and then... When we leave church, we put them back in the box, and then sometimes some of us have a morning devotion where we have God in that box, and we get there, and we open that up, and we meet with God, and then we put them back in, and we go through our day, and 
Uh, you know, whatever it is, we have these things throughout our day where we, where we try to meet with God, not understanding that the living hope that we have in Christ is available to us at every moment of every day. In every situation that we face, every interaction we have with another human being, we should be influenced by the hope that we have in Christ. Everything that we do, there shouldn't be these little times where we look to, you know, I'm going to go here so I can meet with God, or I'm going to have these moments to meet with God. I'm not, we, we need to have devotions, we need to come here to do these things, but we need to understand that the things that we do here should affect everything we do, meaning we should have a Christian worldview. That means that the things that are contained in here have been revealed to us by God so that we might understand how to function in this life, how to interact with others, and how to interact with God. Right? He has revealed to us how he interacts with us, and then that in turn overflows out of us into those around us. The point is that too many times we come to the place where, uh, I can't remember, I think it was George Barna did a study on um, how many Christians actually have a, a, a biblical worldview. And I would have to get the statistics, I can't remember uh, what they actually are, but it is astonishingly low, even among people who attend church, Christians that actually have a biblical worldview, meaning that every decision that I make is influenced by the Bible. That when I am confronted with something, I interpret it through the lens of Scripture and what Christ has revealed about himself. That means that most of the church, and I will get those numbers, I'll make sure that I do that for next week and, and go back uh, so that we can we can look at that. But that means that there are a, a very large number of Christians who hear things and we take it in, but it never gets to the place of being the lens by which we understand the world around us. We're just on our own kind of determining things on however we feel. A lot of times today, things are based on how people feel at any given moment. Even in the church, everything is based on how I feel. Uh, but we won't talk about that today. We'll move on beyond that. Uh, that'll be for another day. But my point, my original point was that, that we have a living hope that is available to us in Christ that is not something that we just visit every so often, but it influences everything that we do. Because it is alive, it is something that is vibrant and living, something that, that is moving, something that doesn't just sit still, it's not stagnant. It's not something that's dead, but it's living and affecting us every day. Uh, a hope that uh, it's not affected by human frailty. It's, it's a hope that goes beyond the grave. It is, it's a hope that transcends humanity in itself. It is something that is beyond us. It is something that we can only grasp through the grace of Christ, rise, raising us up to be seated. The Bible says that God has raised us up to be seated with Christ in the heavenly realms. And we, we attain that hope. We live in that area of hope as we are raised up in Him by His grace alone to, to live in that place of hope. It is not something that we can ever work hard enough to attain in ourself out of our own power. It is something that transcends us, us. And that is a blessed thing. To know that that hope transcends humanity. It's not dependent on you and I. It's not dependent on our power, on our strength. It's not dependent on my goodness. It's dependent on the grace of Christ being at work in my heart, rising me up to be seated where He is at. And as I rest in Him, then I am in that place of having a living hope. That should be a blessed thing for the church. We should have joy in knowing that it's not dependent on my frailty. It's not dependent on your frailty. It's not dependent on us as the church to stir up some sort of living hope. It is in the place where Christ dwells. 
The Bible says that we should fix our eyes, set our minds on things above, where Christ is seated with the Father. That's what we are doing. We are taking our minds from being on just the things around us. Being Too many times you see people who find their value in who? The people around them. Right? Everything they have, their hope is dependent on the people around them. And then everything comes crashing down because people are going to fail you. Or they're going to tell you that you're not good enough. Or everything that you have is dependent on the people around you. But if you take the biblical worldview where it says, take your mind and set it on the things above where Christ is seated with the Father. If my mind is in that place, then my hope is living because it's not dependent on the dead things around me. It's not dependent on the things around me that are perishable. It is seated in the place where Christ dwells, which man cannot touch. The Bible says it can never spoil perish or fade. It is a hope that goes beyond this world. It transcends this world. And that is something that should bring us joy, is knowing that that is a hope that is available to us that can never be touched by man. It can never be, uh, it, it can never be touched by the infirmities of man or the afflictions of man or the, 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 the failings of man can never uh, harm the hope that is available to us. It transcends us. So we have a living hope in Christ. But Peter says uh, to the church, that we have been born into not just a living hope, but also an inheritance. And that's such an amazing thing to know that we have been given an inheritance in Christ. But let's, uh, uh, verse 4, it says, uh, we've been born into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. Uh, so the first thing we have to understand all of this is, is uh, the framework for understanding the, the inheritance that is available to us. Number one is that, Jesus, the only begotten Son of God, is the natural heir of the Father. He is the one, Christ is the one who is the natural heir to the Father. He is the heir to all things that are of the Father. God said to him, you are my son. In Hebrews uh, 5, 5, uh, you are my son, today I become your father. Christ's inheritance is the whole universe. Everything that exists, Hebrews 1, 2, says that the Son has been appointed heir of all things. Uh, so Christ is the one who is the natural heir of all things. But those who are saved in Christ have been adopted as sons and daughters. They've been made co-heirs with Christ. Romans 8, starting in verse 14, it says this, For those who are led by the Spirit of God are children of God. The Spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the Spirit you have received brought, you, brought about your adoption to sonship. And by Him we cry, Abba, Father, the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now if we were children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in the sufferings in order that we almost also may share in his glory. It says, the Spirit we receive does not make us slaves, but the Spirit we receive brought about our adoption. You see, there is we've talked about this before, but all through this world you will find nothing like the, the, the Christian faith. There is nothing like what Christ brought to the earth. You will not find that anywhere else. Everything that you find in religion somewhere else is about you being good enough, about you working hard enough, about you doing something to merit salvation, doing something so that God will look on you and say that, that okay, I'm pleased with you because of what, of what you have done. Everything. Everything that you find outside of Christianity is that. And we won't go into all that today. We could pick those apart and show you examples of how that is today. But we will, we're not going to do that. But uh, uh, everything that you find outside of Christianity is about you working hard enough to be good enough so that God will hopefully accept you. 
And most of those religions is you work hard enough and it's maybe God will accept you. You don't even know. There's no way for you to know if you work this hard, then God's going to accept you. It's at the end, you just kind of hope that he does after all of your good work. But the point is, it's about our works. Every other religion is about our works. The difference in Christianity is it has nothing to do with our works. There's nothing in our salvation that, that depends on me doing something. Now, after I receive salvation, that leads me to work. After I have the Spirit of Christ at work in me, that leads me to to living out the mission of Christ. His Spirit dwelling in me transforms my heart so that I begin to reflect His character. And the natural overflow of His character is His work. But my salvation doesn't depend on it. I can never do anything to be good enough. That's what we don't understand. I know I talk about this over and over, but we have to talk about it over and over because we have to get this. We have to understand that God is so far beyond us and so holy that there is nothing. There is nothing we could have done. There is nothing we could have done to be good enough. You see, it was His choice to send His natural heir, the Son that came, His only Son, His only begotten Son. It was His choice to send His only begotten Son who is His natural heir to all things, to redeem a people who deserve nothing from Him and make them co-heirs with Christ. You see why we should be so joyous? Because not only did God give us the opportunity for salvation based on no merit in ourselves, but He gave us all things that are Christ. We are co-heirs with Christ. Because of His grace and mercy alone, there's nothing we could have done to be, to deserve that. You see, a simple definition of, of heirs is those who receive their lot of possession by right of sonship. We have been made co-heirs with Christ. And just some of the things that we have inherited in him is, number one, entering into his joy. Matthew twenty-five twenty-one says, uh, His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. We have been able to enter in the joy of God through Christ as we have been, become co-heirs with Christ. We have had the opportunity to enter in the joy of the master. The Bible also says in Revelation 3.21 that we will sit down in his throne. Revelation 3.21 says, The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. We are able to share in his glory. John 17.22 says, The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may, may be one as we are one. And we inherit all things. And Revelation 21.7 says, He who overcomes shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. Uh, so the point is, that, and there, there's countless things we could go through and show you all of the things that are laid out in the Bible for us, all of the things that have been made available to us in Christ. There are countless things that God has laid out that are available to us in Christ, and we could go through all those things today, but we don't have time. The point is, in all of this, is I have a share in the immeasurable riches of God. Because of what Christ has done, I have, have a stake in what God has, been, has made available to mankind. I have, I have a share in the riches of God. 
Because I have become a co-heir in Christ, not because of my goodness, but because of His grace. You see, Christ is the natural heir of all things. It is by His nature that He is an heir. We are heirs by grace. And we should be thankful for that. That should result in our praise to God because we have been an heir, become an heir of all things. So we have been given a living hope and an inheritance. Then First uh, Peter 4, the second half of that verse into verse 5, he's talking about who, who has this been made available to then? says, this inheritance is kept in heaven for you who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. So it is available to those who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready. You see, our living and hope in our inheritance is made made available to those who are shielded by God's power through faith. Uh, So we are shielded by God's power as we believe and trust, as we look on the things of God, and as we uh, stand on the foundation of God and and we hear Him speak. I I think a simple definition of faith is a believing response to the promise of God. That means that God says something, I believe, and then I respond. That means that the things that God says, I believe He is who He says He is. If He makes a promise, He makes a way for me to share in that promise. If he says, go here, that means that he will take me from this point to that point. That he will make the way for it to happen. It may be difficult. It may not look the way that we want it to look. But the point is that I am able to look on when God says, you go here. Or you do this. Or I want you to give this amount of money to this. Or I want you to to stop uh, stop doing this. Or whatever it is that God asks of you, that we see that in the distance and say, God, God I, I believe that you have called me to this. I believe that you will make a way for it to happen. I don't understand it, but I believe that there is a reason. That's the point. We trust. A lot of times we have this way of trying to reason our way out of the things that God has called us to, right? We have God saying uh, maybe that he's leading you in a certain direction. We have a way of saying, well, you know, this is, if, if I do that, then this is going to happen, or, or this person's not going to like me, or, you know, I'm, I'm working this job, God, where I'm making this much money, and if I go do this, then I'm not going to be able to devote myself to this, and maybe they're going to start, you know, not, uh, maybe not wanting me around in this job, and I'll have to find something where I don't make as much money. We have this way of, of talking ourselves through all the reasons why we shouldn't do something, Right? We will find a million reasons not to do what God has called us to do. But the point is that we are shielded by God's power from now to eternity until we draw our last breath as we walk this earth. We are shielded by the power of, of God. The Bible says that uh, uh, what is available to us is the same power that raised Christ from the dead. I believe it's in the book of Ephesians that it says that. Same power that raised Christ from the dead shields you for salvation. But what it takes is us fixing our eyes on Him and walking in that direction. So, what? What? Uh, in order to have faith, though, uh, this requires our mind to be engaged. We have to believe who Jesus says He is. Uh, but we also have to take another step and trust. So I was reading a commentary, and a guy, a guy talked about it this way. He said that faith requires two things. Intellectual assent, meaning our mind accepting the truth 
uh, as truth the nature of what is laid before us. Intellectual assent is saying, uh, uh, he used this example, so we have this thing right here that we call a chair, right? This thing is supposed to support someone. We look at it and we see the way it's laid out and we believe that that's a chair, right? So it takes my mind acknowledging what this is. But it also takes trust. So what does that mean? I I acknowledge what this is, but trust means that I believe I can sit in this and it's going to hold me up. It's going to accomplish its purposes. And that is exactly the way that faith is. It first takes our mind being engaged. Whoever tells you, there are, I I love to watch uh, debates with atheists. And they will tell you over and over that faith is a blind faith. That having faith is something that is blind, there's no reason. That is the farthest thing from the truth. God doesn't want anyone to function in this life in a way that their faith is meaningless to them or has no reason. He wants our minds to be engaged. He wants us to ask questions. He wants us to know that there is truth that leads us to a place of belief. We might not always know all of the answers, but the point is that I don't just blindly accept everything and say I have Christian faith. That's not what this is. There is reason to believe that Christ was who he says he is. There is reason to believe that there is a God that exists in heaven and that he orders things and that he he works with men and that he has a relationship with men if we would so choose. There is reason to believe that there is something beyond this, this earth because every man since the beginning of, of time has looked for that. There is reason to believe that there is no way of understanding morality without there being an eternal God. There is reason to believe all of these things. Faith is not blind. So God calls us to the place of faith. Number, number one, believing intellectually engaging our mind, recognizing that as this chair is a chair, and then agreeing that it is designed to support a person as, it's, as he would sit on it. And then trust is actually sitting in the chair. So we believe in Jesus, but we believe the Bible says uh, belief is not, is not enough in itself. The Bible says that even demons believe. There are those in in the the realms of evil that acknowledge Jesus is who he says he is. They believe he has power. So what's the point of all of this? It's us having trust to engage in who he says he is and move my life in the direction that he points me. That when I see that he has said something, that he's laid out something, I would apply that to my life and figure out how to walk in that. So people who believe Jesus and trust Him are then shielded by God's power. The word here that uh, in Peter, in how he's talking about this, being shielded by God's power into the coming of salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. The wording signifies that we are kept under military guard or defended as in a fortress or a castle. So God's true people are under the constant watch care of God. We are by the mercy of God given a living hope, moving from death to life and salvation and adopted into the family of God. Given the very rights of a son to inheritance, we are then shielded by the power of God, preserving us to lay hold of our own inheritance in Christ. So knowing all of this, 
knowing that I have this living hope and knowing that I have an inheritance, knowing that I have become a co-heir with Christ, not by my power but by His grace that is at work in my life, knowing then that I walk through this earth not just, uh, not just uh, punching my ticket to heaven and then walking on my own strength trying to get to the final destination so I can receive salvation, but knowing that I am shielded by the very power of God that has raised Christ from the dead, knowing all of those things, then I can rejoice in spite of the temporary afflictions of this life. First Peter 1, uh, starting in verse 6, says, In all of this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. See, our joy in the midst of trials, we can experience joy in the midst of suffering. We can experience joy in the midst of afflictions, in the midst of grief, because our joy is in that place where Christ dwells. Our minds are set on things in the heavenly places where Christ dwells with God. Our life is hidden with Christ in God, the Bible says. I walk in that place. And when I walk in that place, I may be experiencing sorrow in my humanity. I may experience grief and loss and not understanding. But I can experience joy because I know that I have been given riches that are beyond my imagination that are available to me in Christ. And it doesn't depend on my power. It depends on the power of God working in me to shield me for salvation. That's what it depends on. Though now for a little while you may have had to suffer, our life in comparison to eternity is a little while. We were talking before the service and I've talked with Lynn and Jamie and countless people about is it not amazing that July is halfway over? That is absolutely crazy, isn't it? But we have no perspective sometimes on eternity. These last couple months have flown by. And I'm only 34. But 34 years flies by in a blink of an eye. And I'm sure the rest of you that are older than that would say the same. The time that we spend here is nothing. I'm not saying that to diminish the grief, the pain, the loss, the suffering that we endure. Some people, there are people in this world that experience suffering that most of us cannot even imagine. There are people that have had things done to them by other people that we cannot even imagine. But sometimes we have to understand that first of all, I think the greatest places that Christ will work is in the places of weakness. When He sees men who try to stand in their own strength, they're not going to experience joy. might experience some momentary happiness, but the joy that I am talking about that transcends this world, that looks on and has a living hope and sees an inheritance, 
sees themselves as a co-heir of Christ and walks in that, the peace and righteousness and joy that is the kingdom of God. Someone who walks in that is totally opposite of the person who walks in their own strength. You see, you're not going to find that joy of Christ, the peace of Christ in someone who tries to do life out of their own strength. You're not going to find that. Christ is near to the brokenhearted. And you understand, we are able to rejoice in our sufferings because we have a high priest. The Bible says in Hebrews 4.15, it says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Our Savior experienced sufferings in every way. He experienced grief. He experienced temptations in every way. So that He knows the things that you are tempted by, He knows. He knows the weaknesses of men. He knows the difficulties sometimes we have in keeping ourselves fixed, our eyes fixed on Him. He knows. Because He experienced it. In Isaiah 53, it says this in verse 3. It says, He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hid their faces. He was despised and we esteemed Him not. So God left His place in the Son to dwell among men and became a man of sorrows. In no way can we ever diminish the sorrow, the grief, the pain that people deal with. There are times sometimes as Christians, I've seen a lot of things as a pastor. Sometimes the things where people don't know what to say when somebody's going through grief, so they just say anything that comes to their mind, and usually it's the worst thing that you could say. A lot of times it's trying to comfort themselves rather than somebody else. We can never try to talk somebody out of the grief that they are experiencing, the pain, the suffering that they are experiencing. But we point them to the Savior. We point them to Him and help them to understand that this man of sorrows, this man who left his place in heaven and became a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, acquainted with affliction, he knows what you are suffering with. He knows what you have been through. He knows what you are walking through. He knows all of those things. Don't try to talk somebody out of pain with human wisdom. Point them to the Savior who walked through it Himself and allow Him to be the one that speaks to them. And the last thing I'll talk about here is uh, verse 7. It says all of these things that we've gone through, the suffering, the temporary afflictions. Verse 7, it says, These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. See, faith proven genuine is worth more than any kind of worldly wealth. You have gold, which is the standard of of value in this world. 
It's a perishable thing. And it can only purchase or bring valuable to perishable things. And the Bible says that greater than that is the faith that is proven genuine by those who experience the difficulties of this life. You see, our faith is proven genuine by the things that we go through. Have you ever seen the person who who has been in the church their whole life? They haven't they haven't needed to be the person who is always outspoken and always at the center of attention, but they served behind the scenes. Doing all the things that needed done, they never needed any sort of uh they didn't never needed thanked for it, they never needed praised for it. They accepted just serving God and being happy in that. But the person who has done that and suffered in their life. There are people that have walked through this this life and and have experienced pain and suffering and and loss, family problems, and they have come out on the other side with greater faith that has been proved genuine. It has been proved genuine because they kept the faith through all of the things that they dealt with. They didn't just throw in the towel when things got difficult. They didn't just throw in the towel when when people didn't like them because of their faith or when when people chose to turn their backs on them. They didn't throw in the towel when they didn't get thanked for the things that they did. Our faith is proved genuine as we walk through the things of this life and suffer with our Savior. So today, as the worship team comes up and we end uh, time together, the question is, what what do we know of faith today? What do we know of this faith that Peter is talking about? What do we know of this living hope? What do we know of an inheritance? Is this something that is real to us? Is this something that, that when we wake up in the morning, my decisions are based on the things that are available to me in Christ, the things that He has done in my life? Are my decisions based on the fact that my mind is set on Him. My life is hidden with Him and God. My mind is set on things above. And my decisions then reflect that. Do we know a hope that influences everything that we do? Something that is living. Do we look forward to the day that we walk with Christ as co-heirs in that place of receiving our final reward? Do we live in light of those things today? We have all of these things available to us today. You understand it's the same things we talked about in chair in in this crazy example of a chair is just my mind acknowledges what it is. My faith allows me to sit believing that it is able to hold me and accomplish its purpose. The same thing you understand that we could talk about from now to eternity, we could talk about the things that are contained in this. 
We can talk about it over and over and you understand that it is meaningless unless we are willing to sit down. It is no different than just standing here, my legs are tired, I see that's a chair. Becoming weary, experiencing pain. And there's a chair sitting right there. We acknowledge it is what it, is, what it's, what it looks like. We never sit down. How foolish that would be, right? For the person who's tired and weary and burdened to not sit down when a chair is available to them. We would never do that. But all the while we have the promises of Christ available to us today. We have a living hope available to us. We have all the promises that He has laid out for those that would be His co-heirs. We have them here. But the question is, have we ever sat down? Have we ever trusted to the point of allowing ourselves to believe and allowing it to influence everything that we say and do? I was, uh, this is the last thing I'll say. Years ago, I don't know how long ago it was. Maybe 14 or 15 years ago now, but uh, I was leading worship at uh, an event in Florida. My my one uh, friend and I went down, he preached and I led worship. It was just me and him. And I remember uh, he was talking, I don't remember exactly what about what he was talking about, but something along the lines of, you know, having to live according to the word and apply it to our lives and allow it to affect us. And we walked out the door uh, and an older gentleman in the church came out and he was not terribly happy about that. And I remember distinctly he said, you know, I've been going to church all my life. I know what the Bible says. I don't need to read it. You wouldn't think that somebody would actually say that. You see, sometimes even though we don't say that, our actions prove that's what we think. My point is we can, as I said, we can sit here, we can talk, I can tell you things. We can sit in classes. You can hear things. We can do, you know, 16-week-long studies and video curriculums. We can do anything that you can imagine. You can get on YouTube and hear sermons anytime you want. Not one of those things matters unless we are willing to sit down in it. None of it matters. And all I'm saying in this is do not allow your life to be wasted just by hearing something and being tired and seeing the solution right there and never sitting down in it. Because some of us will, maybe you're 15 years old right now, the young people in here, and you've heard these things over and over, but before you know it, you're going to be 34, or you're going to be 60, or you're going to be 80. It flies by, I'm telling you right now, it's going to be way quicker than you think. And it is so easy for you to look back and see that I wasted years because I was tired and the solution was there and I didn't sit down. Some people will never realize that. Some people will realize that when they get to the point where they're about to the end. Some people are lucky enough to realize that when they are young enough to do something about it. 
don't mistake that. There is always, till you draw your last breath, there is always something you can do in accepting Christ. But my point is to walk in what Christ has available to us. Some of us are still young enough to live a life that way. So as we sing, as we close today, again, come to the altars. If there's anything that you need to deal with with God, if, if there are ways that maybe you see that chair and you are tired and you've never sat down, you can start that process today. Or maybe you're just thankful for what God has made available to you. Come to the altars. Do that. Do it in your chair, whatever you need to do. Just don't, don't miss what God wants to do in these moments.